Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you all. Uh, it's uh, not too far of a drive from where I'm locally at with the Saints at Fort Lauderdale Hope Bible Chapel, uh, but I'm glad for the opportunity to be with you all. Thankfully, this morning, um, our brother Malcolm informed me of the schedule, told me what time I'm supposed to finish. One of the first things I do when I'm speaking at somewhere for the first time is find out when I'm supposed to finish, because the only thing worse than listening to a sermon, wondering when this guy's going to finish, is being the guy giving the sermon, wondering the same thing. <laughs> Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 1. I remember the first time I visited a church in Oklahoma. Um, this was an Indian church, and so I was preaching, and I had a translator. It was an evening meeting. We started at um, 8 o'clock. Uh, I, I started preaching at 8.20 with the translator. At 8.40... I've finished my introduction. I'm really just getting into my first point. My translator closes his Bible, turns to me and says, Son, close in prayer. And so thankfully I won't have that problem this morning. So let's open in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he's come. We've heard many titles of our Christ. We thank you that this morning we have a few to consider and we ask that you would open our eyes and make him plain to us. We want to see him as you've presented him, full of glory, Father. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John is my favorite author, not only uh, among Bible authors, but among authors in general, Shakespeare, Tolkien, um, Steinbeck, you take all the wonderful authors. I would put John up there. He is an expert of his craft. Even reading him in English, it's beautiful to see how he handles the things he's presenting. He, watching him, studying him as an author, is like studying Michael Jordan as a basketball player. There's no one better. He's, uh, the things he presents, He's presenting in a different way than the rest of even the gospel writers. The other three gospels are often paired together, right, or, or combined. We call those the, the synoptic gospels. That means they, they see sort of in the same way. They're looking at Jesus in a similar way. But John looks at it in a different way. He's not only showing us Jesus, he's making us see Jesus. He's not just holding him up there. He's bringing us right next to Jesus so that we're face to face, forced to confront who he is. He was writing this gospel at least 30, maybe up to 50 years after the other gospels were written. So he's not writing to teach us history, even though it is a historical book. He's not writing to teach us new stories, even though there are new stories in this gospel. Now he's writing with a thesis and a purpose in mind. There is one thesis verse. There is one idea and concept he's trying to get us to see. This is John's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's read from verse 14. This is the single idea. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Continuing verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. 
For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the thesis of John. Namely, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That's the idea he wants to communicate. And we have at the other end of this gospel, the purpose verse. John's gospel, chapter 20. This is his purpose verse. And it reads, for the sake of context, we'll read from verse 30. John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore... Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the purpose. This is the reason John wrote his gospel. Why after there had been three other gospels that the church had already received, why he felt the need to write one more from a different perspective. So that we might believe and have eternal life. And what is it that he wants us to believe? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. It's around these two poles that the rest of the gospel revolves. We can't understand what he's saying in chapters 1 through 21 unless we understand how these two things, the thesis and the purpose, inform everything else. Now, John is unique in assuming that you know the things in the other Gospels. He also assumes that you've read this Gospel before. It's not a Gospel you're meant to read one time and understand. He's assuming that you're going back and reading it and rereading it over and over again. Some books we read over and over like Romans because it's hard to understand what's being said. But there's no difficult language in John's gospel. He's not constructing very careful grammatical things that we have to unlock. He's writing in plain language, yet he assumes we're going to be studying it over and over again. There are things that we read in the latter chapters that we have to know in order to make sense of things happening in the earlier chapters. And you understand that what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, when he says, everyone who drinks from this well will thirst again, but anyone who drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again, it takes understanding that in chapter 7, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit who will come, and says, if anyone comes to me, I will give him living water. When he says to the woman in chapter 4, those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth, we have to understand that in chapter 16, he says, I will spend, send to you the spirit of truth. John's gospel is built upon an understanding of John's gospel. It's stories that have a significance once we understand the totality of it. The minute, the smallest detail takes on greater significance when we understand the entirety of what's being said. It's like hearing stories of characters you're already familiar with. No one in John's gospel is somebody that the readers were unaware of. They knew the people in these stories. It's almost like when you're in elementary school, you hear stories of George Washington. 
and they tell you uh, the story of the cherry tree. I think it's apocryphal and probably made up, so uh, that's not the parallel here. It's the, you hear the story. There's a cherry tree in the backyard, gets chopped down. His dad comes out and asks, who chopped down the cherry tree? He denies it, and uh, later, because of a sense of guilt, he's, he goes back to his dad and says, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. And if that's just all you know, it's just a story about a kid feeling guilty and changing his mind. But because you have in mind the picture of the general of the army standing at the front of the ship crossing the Delaware, leading a small group of warriors against the greatest empire in the history of the world, because you know that this man is a great man, he embodies the ideals of the nation that he's uh, working to found, because you know all this about him, that story, when you hear about him as a little child, you realize this was a man who even from his youth stood for the principles that matter. His life later informs you about the stories of an earlier time. It's the same way when we encounter Jesus in John's gospel. What he's doing is telling us about people and situations we've heard before. We've heard stories about Jesus cleansing the temple. But when we encounter it in the context that John's presenting it, he's forcing us to see not only the situation as those who were there witnessed it, but those who have been given the eyes of faith to see. He's forcing us to look at Jesus as God the Father would have us see him. And so with this in mind, I want to present to you in chapter 1 two ideas. The witness and the word. The witness and the word. Chapter 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. This is John the Baptist. He is, as John the author, the apostle John calls him, a witness. It's hard for us to understand how significant of a character he is. We know John the Baptist because of his relationship to Jesus. But everybody living in this time period would have known about Jesus based on his relationship to John the Baptist. He is the central cultural figure. He is the first voice of God after 400 years of silence. Any true seeker after God, any true seeker after righteousness would have looked rightly to John the Baptist. It is Jesus who is understood through John the Baptist, not the other way around. In fact, it's so significant of a point that he is the only character in all four Gospels that appears before the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's a single verse in every Gospel that marks the beginning point of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark, it's chapter 1, it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And in John's gospel, it's chapter 2, This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. In all four gospels, before the beginning 
point of Jesus' ministry, there's one single character and one single event that occurs. That is John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. There's no other common feature at the beginning point of the other four Gospels. He is the way to understand who Jesus is for those people who were living at that time. In fact, he's so significant that John the Baptist is mentioned after the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Again, all four Gospels record John the Baptist's disciples interacting with Jesus' disciples so as to understand what is the transition, what is the exchange that's taking place. He's present before as the only person before the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and afterwards, every gospel explains how this transition is taking place. He is a key figure to understand. John, here, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, calls him a witness. He came as a witness. Now, you'll read in verse 6, There came a man. This is the first thing to understand about this witness. There came a man. In fact, a good translation is, There came to be a man. This is in contrast to what we read in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. This man is different than the Word. The Word always was. The Word didn't begin to exist. The Word didn't come into being. The Word always was, even at the beginning. But here, the witness, there became. There came into being a man. He's an ordinary man. Even though Jesus himself said, among men born among women... John the Baptist is the greatest. Even if he's the greatest man in Jesus' own estimation, he's still a man. In quality, he is a man. He began to exist. The significance of John the Baptist as a witness is there came a man sent from God. Sent from God. The significance of John the Baptist is not his person, it is his purpose. It is what God has intended for him to accomplish that makes him different from everyone else. There came a man sent from God. In Luke chapter 1, we read of God speaking to his father, God speaking to John the Baptist's father, saying, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist is sent before God's final messenger, God's final revelation. Before God's final revealing of himself, John the Baptist is the one who will come. As we said, he came, he stepped onto the scene after 400 years of silence, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, ends with a warning. God speaks and says, I will send a messenger, the verse we read. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The last word God spoke to his people is beware. Your hearts need to be changed. Your hearts need to be returned to God. Otherwise, I am coming with a curse. The last thing God's people heard for him before 400 years of silence is I am coming with a curse unless you get your hearts right. For 400 years, 
That is the last thing God's people heard. And finally, John the Baptist appears on the scene saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist is the first voice from God, finally offering hope. Finally offering hope. We read of his testimony. I want you to see here in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. He's a witness. When you think of a witness in a courtroom, right when right before they take the stand, they're sworn in. And what are they made to say? They raise their hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That sounds a little repetitive. I don't know the significance of why it's said that way, but I know when someone's made to say that, it's a serious situation. Something important is coming when you have to take an oath like that. Something serious is coming. Here's what happens. Verse 19. This is the testimony of the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Okay? Capture these four elements again. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Jews, priests, Levites, Jerusalem. These four parties play a prominent role throughout John's gospel. These four terms show up throughout the gospel of those who are coming to challenge the person of Jesus. We see Jesus' character challenged by these four parties, and they are the ones almost making up the jury. And John the witness is on, on trial, verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It sounds a little repetitive, But John the author puts that in here because he wants us to know something significant is about to be said here. He confessed this. He did not deny it, but confessed. There's no doubt about what's taking place here. It's completely trustworthy. They came to ask him, who are you? Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Right? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That would have been an important question for anyone alive at that time. This man who's offering peace with God after 400 years of expecting a curse, is he the promised one? And it's necessary for him to declare, I am not the one who is going to bring about God's purposes. I'm not that one. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He didn't say, I am one crying in the wilderness. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let's just stop here for a moment of application. It is not who he is, it is not his office, it is not his uh, well-known nature, it's not his popularity. It is what he has been given by God to communicate that informs the entirety of his identity. I'm not special in any way except that I'm giving you what God has said. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That ought to tell us something. 
about how we conduct ourselves, about how we conduct ourselves as individual believers and as congregations before God. It is not our size. It is not our ability to convince through crafty speech. It is not our uh, ability to draw huge crowds. It is not anything we're able to do or accomplish. It is only and singularly the purity and clarity of the message we proclaim that sets us apart. There will always be somebody better than us at doing things. But we will fully and perfectly be fulfilling God's purpose for us when we understand our identity as the voice of God, speaking what God has spoken, proclaiming what God has proclaimed, acting as God's echo. That is how we ought to understand ourselves. That is how John the Baptist, the greatest man born among women, understood himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So that is the witness. Second, the word. The word in verse 14, we're told the word became flesh. The word is God. That's why in verses 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just want to take the time to point out one significant point about the word. His contrast in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Here. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, is the law at odds with God's grace and truth? Is the law in conflict with God's grace and God's truth? Are they enemies? No, certainly not. God's law is not at odds with God's grace and God's truth. He says the law and the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, John in the following verses of the chapter, in verses twenty four and verses twenty nine, he shows us what happens when the witness and the word enter the stage at the same time. He's introduced us to the word. He's introduced us to the witness. And he's about to show us, especially in verse 29, what happens when the witness and the word enter the stage at the same time. But I want you to notice the few things he introduces, the few ideas he puts into place before these two come into contact. The first, Moses and the law, grace and truth, Jesus Christ. Now return with me to verse 21. This is... Those who are coming to test John the Baptist, they ask, who are you? Verse 21, they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Circle that. He answered, no. Why did they ask, are you a prophet? They asked, are you the prophet? What prophet were they referring to? Now, John the author is... uh, Careful to insert this detail. We don't have other Gospels recording this question. This detail. Are you the prophet? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. We've heard Moses and the law in contrast to Jesus and God's grace and truth. And here we have them questioning John the Baptist, asking, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 18. We read... Moses saying, 
Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, for from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembling, saying, Let me not see this great fire anymore. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, or I will die. This is referencing what took place in Exodus chapter 20 when God gives the law. This is what John in chapter 1 was saying. The law came through Moses. That happened in Exodus chapter 20. God gives Moses the law on stone tablets. But when that scene is taking place, the people who are gathered at the foot of the mountain, we can't handle it, Moses. We can't handle hearing the voice of God. We can't bear to see him in the cloud. It's too much for us. And that is a correct response. The presence, the image of a holy God is a terrible sight for sinners. And they were right to respond that way. And they made a request to Moses. You go speak to God. You go on our behalf and speak to God. And here in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you in accordance with all that you asked when he gave the law. Now what happens when Moses received the law, walked down, and what were the people doing? Worshipping an idol. Moses brought the word of God and found idolatry. And he smashed the stone tablets on the idol and broke the idol. So God had to re-give the law had to give again the stone tablets. This is Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, God is going to bring a prophet like me. I went and spoke to God on your behalf. God will raise up from our countrymen someone like me who will speak to you on God's behalf. That's coming in the future. They asked John the Baptist, are you that prophet? John the Baptist says no. But here in Exodus chapter 33, I want you to notice, this comes right before God re-gives the stone tablets. In verse uh, chapter 33, verse, uh, let's do 11, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, that should bring an echo of John chapter 1. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We should hear echoes when it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. But here's the request of Moses. Chapter 33, verse 16. No, let's do 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. And I have known you by name. Verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That is a holy request. Moses asks God what every other person knows they're not capable of receiving. Show me your glory. Okay, keep your finger there. I want you to see what John is doing in chapter 1. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. This word, beheld, is key to the rest of the gospel. We beheld His glory. When is the next time this word shows up? John's Gospel, chapter 1. This is the witness and the word entering the stage. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John's Gospel is written so that we might believe in Jesus. And we might believe that He is the Word that has become flesh and dwelt among us, and that we beheld His glory. This whole thing is written so that we would see His glory. Why then does John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why is that what tells us about God's glory? What about Jesus being a lamb, a sacrifice, gives us any insight into how glorious he is? Back to Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. Very carefully here, verse 19. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. What is God's name? This isn't a trick question. What is God's name? I want you to read here what God proclaims his name to me. He says to Moses, I will pass by you and I will proclaim my name to you. Okay, verse 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. As he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Okay, I'm going to start reading. And when I say period, that's the end of God's name. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, period. That is God's name. God says to Moses, I will pass by in front of you and I will proclaim to you my name. God starts speaking and does not stop until he has proclaimed all of this. If you want to see my glory, God seems to be saying to Moses. Moses says, God, show me your glory. God says, if you want to see my glory, you have to hear my name. You have to understand my name. And we love the first part of God's name. I know I do. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I would have put the period right there. But God keeps going. Here's the rest of his name. He will by no means, never, the grammar says, he will never leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, on the grandchildren, the third and fourth generation. 
This is God's glory. That he is both loving and forgiving. And he is just. Never excusing sin. We have no explanation in the Old Testament of how this is done. We know through the pictures of sacrifice that God manages to do it. God says he will take care of it. But we have no understanding. How can God forgive and punish? How can he forgive and punish? We have no human legal system, no court that's able to forgive someone and sentence them. Nor do we have a court who's capable of declaring them innocent and sending them to jail or giving them the punishment and saying they're innocent. There's no way to bring these two together. But God here says, this is the fullness of my name. If you want to see my glory, you have to understand how I am compassionate and gracious and just. And so here is what John the Baptist says. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first glorious truth. Not first in order, first in priority. Jesus is many things in this Gospel. He is the good shepherd. He is the living water. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is many things, but he is none of these things unless he is first to you, the Lamb of God. Unless he first takes the punishment of your sin so that you can receive of his righteousness, unless God is able to fully express his character, his glory as forgiving and just, unless God's character is perfectly maintained when he restores a relationship to you, Jesus Christ is none of the things written in the rest of the gospel. He has to first be the Lamb of God to you. It is like walking into a house. There are many things in that house that are yours. Your bed, your TV, your clothes. All of those things are yours. But until you go through the front door, until you have the access to all of those things, none of those things can you possess. Jesus Christ must first be to you God's way of being perfectly just and perfectly forgiving. That's why John the Baptist, the first person that the Apostle John writing, shows us, said, this is what I want you to see about Jesus. This is the Word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. You want to see His glory? You want to behold His glory. The first person John gives us to point to the glory, literally pointing and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. The first point of access. The only point of access to beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is to first see Him as the forgiveness of your sins. God will not deal with you on any other basis unless He first deals with you as forgiven by the blood of of the Lamb. Here's what John says, verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Verse 31. 
This is almost John the author speaking through John the Baptist to us readers. Okay, verse 31. I did not recognize him. This is Jesus' cousin. At least 30 some years they've grown up together. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested, made visible, plain to see, so that he might be manifested, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist, closer to him than any other person in the Gospels. I did not recognize him, he says, but here. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. No one has seen God at any time. And yet here we read in John's Gospel chapter 1, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. There is a way to not stand at the foot of the mountain and tremble in the presence of God. There is a way to stand before God without fear. It is through the only begotten Son. That's why John says, Behold the Lamb of God, and behold, this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us such a rich and beautiful text for us. We had the gospel in Matthew and Mark and Luke. We thank you that you knew our needs, that we had to see, we had to behold Jesus. We thank you that you've spoken to our hearts, you've spoken to our minds in the person of the Lord Jesus. How, how wonderful it is that we no longer live in fear. Those who know you, those who have come to you through your Son, we thank you that we stand in your presence, forgiven and at peace. Father, we thank you for all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus.